0: I want to be ready. I want to trust that I'll be given the ticket at the moment that I need it. But in the meantime, I want to be faithful in the work he's given me right now. Uh, The daily hidden obediences that only he sees, and that's good enough. So that if something, if I'm called for something a little more public, a little more dangerous, a little more costly, I will have treasured Christ today above all else, so that I will be able to treasure him in that moment above all else and take whatever risk is necessary. So playing Corey has molded and shaped me in that way, to stay in a place of humility and daily readiness for whatever I'm called upon to do.
1: Hi friends, welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm your host, Joanna LaFleur, and this is a special summer bonus episode. I wanted to bring you this episode because of an opportunity to talk to somebody that I was excited to talk to. We're on a summer hiatus and we've got lots of new content that we're sort of holding in the library right now, waiting for the fall to be dropping a new season and more on that later. We'll talk a little bit about, about that at the end of the episode, but let me tell you a little bit about who we are talking to today actor Nan Gurley, and you may not have heard of her because actually primarily she's a stage actor and they have made a new film adaption, adaption of the book, The Hiding Place, which is coming for a few days only to theaters, August 3rd and August 5th in US and Canada. And I wanted to talk to Nan because it's all about um, a story of The Hiding Place. This is a book that has um, come out of the life of a woman named Corrie Ten Boom. And the story of this book is that During the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands in World War II, Corrie Ten Boom and her family had a hiding place in their house for Jews and others who were refugees of the war, who were hiding from going to concentration camps and hiding from going to prison because of the Nazi occupation. And so this is a story that's really personal to me because my own family is Dutch. My dad was born during the war. In Holland, Uh, his parents um, had to house a Nazi in their house during the war. They were involved in all kinds of, you know, (laughs) thinking and wrestling and working through how to live in such difficult times. And actually, my grandfather's criticism of the first version of the Hiding Place film, which came out in, I believe, the 1970s, about the story of Corey Ten Boom, was actually that it was too cleaned up. It was too uh, too easy. They made it look too easy. There's actually much more pain, sorrow, violence, struggle, suffering during those times. And the the film version kind of cleaned it up. And so what I love about this film adaptation is it's bringing the story again to us. It's a story of courage in the face of great evil. It's a story of loving our enemies. It's a story of standing for what we believe in, even at the great personal cost that it might be. The story of Cory ten Boom uh, is personal to me because of my own Dutch story. Um growing up in the, the the time where we got to hear these stories of the war, but also just personal to me because uh, I've been reflecting on her life, this woman of great courage and what it took for her to say these yeses one at a time that led her to be able to save hundreds of lives and at great personal cost to herself. So you'll hear more about that in this interview. And I encourage you, if you haven't heard of the story, the book is amazing. I want you to go to theaters to check this out. I'm going to be going on August 3rd or August 5th. I haven't booked my tickets yet, but would love for you to do so as well. So hidingplacefilm.com is where you can find it. hidingplacefilm.com. And there's going to be a link down in the show notes to Nan Gurley and The Hiding Place and all this kind of stuff. But for now, please enjoy this conversation between myself and Nan Gurley. Nan Gurley, welcome to Word Made Digital. I am really glad to have you on the podcast today. The, the topic is exciting to me personally. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you,
0: Joanna. I'm thrilled to be here.
1: So, I mean, of course, before we go any further, um, you know, we'd love you to introduce yourself. But before we do that, could you talk about the thing that we're here to talk about, which is the hiding place? Let's just start with what is it? And then I'd like to go back into who are you? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, What is well, The Hiding
0: Place? The Hiding Place is the title of an incredible a book written by Corrie Ten Boom. And it's the story of her involvement uh, in the Dutch underground during World War II. Yeah. She and her sister and her father, Kaspar, used their home, their clock shop, as a, a stop along the way to uh, save Jews during World War II, from extermination. So their story, thankfully, has continued to be told through the years. This, of course, happened in 1944, 45. And because Corey survived, we still have this story. She wrote the book. She traveled the world talking about it for 30 years after she was released from Robinsbrook. A film was made in 1975. And, And you and I are talking because... Uh, a a revised film has been made. Mm -hmm. First of all, a stage play was created by the playwright A.S. Peterson, which we mounted here in Nashville, Tennessee, last summer. And during the run of the show, we also took time, while the set was still up, to make a film of our stage adaptation of this story. And this film is going to be released... Uh, in 300 theaters in Canada and yes. 600 in the United States on August the 3rd and August the 5th. And then it will be uh, available globally, August 16. So that's why I'm here. I yeah. have the privilege, the unbelievable privilege of playing Corey Tenboom Boom uh, in the stage adaptation and now in the film that's about to be released.
1: Well, and Nan, I want to get into you and why this work, why this role, you know, what has impacted you about the story and the work on this project. Um, and even this this concept of the adaption from stage play to film, you know, is a conversation yes. I think is really fascinating in the world of the how much... Film, media, all this content is changing, and how we're trying to adapt new things. But before we get there, of course, you and I were just talking before uh, we hit record and getting to know each other a little bit. And and I think it's helpful for listeners to know, you know, some just even my own excitement about this is because of my own connections to this story. You know, I um I have a father. Who was raised? Uh, who was born during the war and raised in Harlem? And his, um, my grandfather, uh, what and grandmother were were there in Harlem? Like I, uh, he was a high school principal turned political leader in the community, a strong Christian, and you know was you know himself moved to action during. You know, during these times, and the connections then between my, you know, my own family and then the story of the Ten Boom family, um, you know, are many. I was even last year, I was at the, the I went to the Cory Ten Boom House. You know, the yes. that that is uh, in Harlem. They've made it now into museum where you can. Right. Um, there's the watch shop on the main floor, uh, which was part of their story, how they had the wash up. And then out on this main street of the city, right, sort of hiding in plain sight, this house yeah, where great. they were housing, um, Jews, they were working in the resistance and trying to save the lives of Jeez. Of people, because of their their Christian faith, they felt they had to to do so. And you know, in the same way that many Dutch people, you know I think of the work you know, uh, my own family and moved by their faith of how do we respond? uh, Mm -hmm. to this like great evil amongst us and this great oppression. And, and, and so I was at this house and I stood in that closet where they, that hiding place. And so let's, let's get more into the story because I'm not sure how many people are familiar, but, but before we go there, um, Nan, who are you? Like, how did you get involved in this theatrical project in the first place?
0: Well, I'm Nan Gurley, born and raised right here in Nashville, Tennessee, and have been an actor for decades. Mm -hmm. Um, My very first theatrical experience I got at eight years old, I was privileged to play Helen Keller in The Miracle Worker in a a, a local college production. So um, I I feel so privileged that I started my career playing an iconic, amazing woman. And now here late in life, I'm, I'm getting to do it again, play a real person who who lived and made a huge impact on society. So I've been a professional actor, singer, writer for for many years, and uh, have, have been a part of the professional companies here in town, one of which is called Studio 10. Mm. And Matt Logan was one of the founding creators of Studio 10. And a guy named A.S. Peterson, we call him Pete Peterson, uh, is a local, Man here, who's a, uh, hes the editor in chief of Rabbit Room Press. Mm, he's a yeah. novelist and a playwright. And Matt Logan yes. approached Pete and said, "After well, we, we let me back up a little bit. Pete's work was had a world premiere in Houston in uh, 2019 at a at a company called AD Players." Which, by the way, little sidebar: "80 Players" was started by the woman who played Corey Ten wow. in the 1975 movie. Okay, she started "80 Players." Well, Pete's play was premiered 2019. There, Matt flew down and saw it and said, "Let's do this in Nashville." Pete worked on some rewrites. COVID hit. Pete continued to work, and then when the pandemic started to lift last summer. 2022, we mounted it here. We also are connected with a husband and wife team, video team called Matula. They were hired to come in and make a film of our stage version using multiple cameras, close-ups. It's not, don't picture one wide shot of this wide stage with all the actors far away. Picture cinematography, real cinematography with cameras that are this close to all of us. So uh, they um, did the film adaptation, spent months and months editing, scoring, and that's how we have the movie. Wow. And I was involved because Pete, Pete had me in mind for Corey. Of course, I worked for years with Studio 10, and Pete had been coming to see our productions and seen me do several major roles. Uh, I think the first thing he saw me in when I, was when I played Amanda Wingfield in Glass Menagerie. So um, he had me in mind from the beginning for this. And, of course, Matt was on board with that because Matt had hired me multiple times. And we, there, was a, there was already a friendship and an element of trust, artistic trust between all of us. So that's how that all came down.
1: And so before you played this role, uh, did you know anything about the story? Uh, had oh, you, yes. heard, you did know it. Okay.
0: Oh, yes. I read the book, The Hiding Place, in my 20s. Wow was blown away by the courage mm. these people showed in a very difficult... They, I was blown away by how they put their lives on the line. Right. Their faith called them to do that. They were willing to risk everything to do the right thing. So even as a very young woman, I was thinking, my goodness, what an incredible story, what incredible people. And then I was making application, would I, if called upon? Right. For in such a moment in time, would I risk everything? Yeah. So yes, I knew the story.
1: And so, uh, you know, when you get, you get this opportunity and then really it resonated with audiences. I think it's fascinating because it's a story that if people are familiar with it, has been told a few different ways. Um um, you know, Cory Ten Boom in her life was, was a speaker. If people are of a certain generation, they may have seen her at conferences. She actually spent some time in Canada where I am, you know, she, uh, she traveled the world doing all this, this yep. sort of, ta- you know, sharing about her faith and courage and hardship. And yet, um a new generation is sort of discovering it through whether her book or through things like this, well, this amazing, you know, play adaption for film that's come out and is coming out and we want people to go see it. Um, what do you think is resonating today? You know, so people maybe are just discovering it, but there are some themes maybe or some, some things about her life and the story of these people, um, that is still capturing people like it's it's an old story but it's not actually an old story
0: well what what i think makes it so incredibly relevant and um accessible to us today is this oh, first of all i'll start with a fun fact in 1844 almost a hundred years before world war ii granddaddy was in the clock shop working, mm-hmm. and he started a prayer group, a weekly prayer group. You probably already know this, Joanna, because your family connection. Yeah. He started a weekly prayer group in the clock shop in their home, which was above the clock shop, for the specific purpose of praying for the Jews, because mm-hmm. anti-Semitism was all, was on the rise, even a 100 years before World War II, yeah. when Hitler... Came into power. So, in the heart of the Tin Boom family, from Granddaddy Tin Boom, was a heart to pray about this issue. So, you fast forward to, let's see, Corey, Corey was born in 1892. Uh, her daddy, Kaspar Tin Boom, is now the head of the clock shop. And uh, the tradition of faith is still going on. But the Tin Booms were Dutch Reformed, strict Calvinists, and the pillar, one of the huge pillars of Reformed theology is the sovereignty of God. So that groundwork was already laid in the hearts of these good people. They're continuing in small daily obedience in this house. A hundred years later, they're continuing. The Ten Booms were active in the church. They, Corey was active in what we would call a Girl Scout um, Effort, but with an evangelistic thrust to it, they were fostering children of missionaries in that house. Corey and Betsy and Kaspar were helping to raise missionary children who, who uh, couldn 't stay on the mission field with their parents, had to come uh, to Holland to the Netherlands for education. So they're ministering small obediences day after day. They were doing what I would call hidden work. It wasn't glamorous at all. And then this big event happens. Hitler invades Poland. Then Hitler, the next
1: year in 1940, invaded Holland. And they it are took called. them in a few days. You know, they were completely unaware uh, or maybe yeah. unprepared. Uh, yes. A small country, they walked right in, basically. Well, yeah. they were
0: unprepared because Hitler had promised not to invade That's Holland. That's right. And then he lied. Yeah. And turned right around and did it. So here they are, these hidden people faced with this huge opportunity and they're approached, asked, will you join the underground? They said yes. They ended up building this tiny little room behind a false wall in Corey's bedroom. It was two feet wide by eight feet tall, you know, because you stood in that tiny room. You've seen it yourself, where six people could hide standing straight up in pitch darkness. So their home Really, I think people should imagine a bus station because people were coming and going. Some stayed for a few hours, some stayed for a few days. And Corey spent all her time on the phone arranging for the next stop along the Underground Railroad. She spent all her time on the phone trying to get ration cards Mm -hmm. to feed these people. And the night uh, the clock shop was invaded, there were 35 people there. In their home. Yeah, they were betrayed, weren't they? They were betrayed by a Dutch spy, a fellow countryman. Yeah. Working for the Nazis. And but there were six people in the hiding place who were not arrested. Corey and Betsy and Kaspar were arrested. Kaspar was 82. Uh, Betsy 52. I mean Betsy fifty seven, Corey fifty-two. Kaspar, in fact, there's this one dramatic, wonderful moment. The guards, the, the policemen come and they, they arrest them and they say to Kaspar, one of the policemen says to Kaspar, old man, you can spend your last days in your own bed if you'll just promise no longer to use your home in this way. And Kaspar said, no matter what you do to me, if you leave me here, tomorrow my home will be open to anyone who need it, needs it. So they arrested this 82-year-old man and he died 12 days later in jail But Betsy and Corey were put in a Dutch prison. Corey in solitary confinement, Mm -hmm. which, by the way, interestingly, she said was the worst time for her there in this Dutch prison. She's in solitary for four months. Uh, Betsy is allowed to have multiple people in her cell. Then they're transferred to a Dutch work camp for three months, and then they get shipped to Ravensbrook, yeah, where they live from August to December. Betsy died there. She Betsy was never uh, a person of robust health. She had pernicious anemia. She died of anemia and starvation in December. Uh, Corey was released twelve days later, due to a what she called a clerical error. Mm. She was released, and a week later, all the women in Robinsbrook her age were sent to the gas chamber. Right. Corey is released. And spends the rest of her life after a recoup, she went to Holland to recuperate, and then went back to Germany. Turned one of the camps into a rehab center, and then spent the rest of her life—30 years—traveling 60 countries to 60 countries. When she came to Canada, she came to the U.S., all over the world, telling the story, preaching the power of the Holy Spirit to give you the ability to forgive. Mm-hmm. So we still have, but I want people to be encouraged that in daily small obedience, when
1: you're tapped on the shoulder to do something, you will be ready. Well, and and actually that's one of the things that when I was rereading the story during a COVID where in Canada and particularly in the province that I live of Ontario, um, there were very strict lockdowns during COVID that went on for a number of years. And our leader was very proud to say we had some of the toughest Restrictions in, yeah, at least North America, if not the world, and uh, it was it was a time where certainly it's not the same as anything that they went through, but it was the closest thing in my own life where I'd had some parallel of something like restriction. Um, there were times where they were threatening us with curfews, like it was kind of nuts. There were you know res- there were limits to certain things you could find in a grocery store. I mean, and by no means was this the same as anything that. Um, Corey Tamboum and all these families, my own Dutch family, all the stories I've heard of the horrible things that happened in the war. But this kind of glimpse at what does it look like when a government can have kind of this much input and, and control over your day to day life and where you go and how you spend your time, and and so touched by how um, how they they were given small opportunities to do something right for someone else to help someone else. And it became what it was, which was let's build an, it wasn't just like, okay, the Nazis are here. Let's build a room in our house to hide Jewish people and save them. It was like, oh, maybe we could find an extra ration card. Oh, maybe we could have someone just for a few hours in between where they're going and where they're coming from. You know, it wasn't these huge acts that, it was these small acts that I think are so relatable. I mean, I'd love to know what you think about that too, because it wasn't all at once. Let's go from zero to grand gesture that ends up in a concentration camp. It yeah. was these small things of these small steps.
0: Yes. And I think it's a beautiful example of how the Lord will never give you more than you can bear in the moment. Mm. He will always give you what whatever he knows you can triumph victoriously mm. through. And there's a theme that Pete, the playwright, so beautifully develops in the play that directly relates to what you just said. There was a moment in Corey's youth <clears throat> where she was talking to her daddy, Kaspar, uh, about something that she was facing. Um, and he said, when when you and I and Betsy go to visit Tante Jans in Amsterdam, mm. when do I give you, before we get on the train, when do I give you the ticket for the train? And she said, you give me the ticket right before we get on the train. And he said, that is exactly right. I give it to you at precisely the moment that you need it. And he said, our heavenly father is the same way. Mm. When he asks you to do something, he will give you the strength you need, the ability to do it right before it's necessary. So he was encouraging her, don't worry, don't be anxious. What will I do if thus and such? Just trust that your heavenly father knows what you need and will give it to you right at the moment you need it, which is what happened to them. Like you say, it began with small acts of obedience, small acts of courage. It began with them being hospitable, which they were so good at. Yes, They were good at bringing in strangers into their home and feeding them and giving them a place to sleep. So God used their gifts and strengths. Mm. Um, in hospitality and it increased and increased. Yes. And they were given the ticket they needed right before they got on the train.
1: Taking a quick break out of the conversation with Nan Gurley because I want to talk to you about an amazing resource from the Canadian Bible Society because I think the Bible can feel overwhelming, confusing, and even hard to believe. But the latest season of Scripture Untangled, which is a podcast by the Canadian Bible Society, is bringing you interviews with culture leaders, leaders in ministry, and Bible thinkers. It's designed to help you dive into the Bible and understand it. You can listen for free and subscribe on your preferred podcast app wherever you're listening to this podcast, you can check out that one. And it's at scriptureuntangled.ca if you want more information. I'm involved. You might recognize my voice on some of the episodes. And we have some amazing guests we would love for you to check out. So go to scriptureuntangled.ca for more info. And I'm back to the conversation about the hiding place. That's it. Well, I think of I'm I'm recalling even um, this idea of hospitality, a story that's in my own family is that during the war, um, one of the things that happened was that uh, uh, my family, my father's family was my dad was a tiny baby during the war. He was born in the, the worst possible time. (laughs) <laughs> um, to be to have a baby you know they were at the it was that 1944 winter where it was incredibly harsh it was the end of the war the weather was terrible there was basically no food people were starving I remember these stories of uh, they would say they'd be lo- they'd all be cozied up in one room because they could try and heat or keep warm in one room together at night mm-hmm. they didn't wow. have fuel they didn't have a lot of food um, and they were they would hear the sound of people out on the streets Cutting down like the publicly planted trees, you know, on any public street, there would be and, and in lots of countries, right? We plant trees along the streets and you would hear people going out in the night and cutting down a tree um, and taking it home because they needed something to fuel and heat their homes. Oh. You know, I, there's stories of our family eating tulip bulbs. Um, Because it's all that they had. There was my my father's older sisters were sent that through all their networks and connections of all these people who were trying to do um, whether it's good work, resistance work, just survival work in the war my dad's older sisters were sent to the north to a family, friends, um, to a farm. And they were sent there for two reasons. It was safer out of the city, safer away from all the ongoings of all the work in the city, um, and the bombings and whatever else. But also there was just simply food that, that these girls could eat if they were, um, out on a farm, there was a little bit more to eat. And so they didn't even know my father was born until one of my father, my grandfather's friends went by Foot and walked up to the north of Holland. Um, there were no bikes, there were no trains, there was no ways to get there other by, than by foot. And at some point, he was able to come north with a message and say to these these girls. There were three girls at the time, and they were able to say, "There's a baby brother that has been born during this dark time." Wow. And you know they, um, you know he, they're in in the city, um, you know in you know it, near Harlem. There, right where Cory Ten Boom was. Um, another story that is told in our family is is that a, they had to house speaking of hospitality, they had to house a Nazi in their home and they were uh, many families were forced to there weren't enough housing places for all these Nazis and the end and the story of you know the Christian perspective of this they had you know talk about he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies they had to be, of course, very careful about what they did and how they spoke. But then in some ways, because a Nazi is in the house, it actually allowed them some levels of freedom because they're assuming, well, if the Nazi guy is here, they're not going to do anything. Um, So Mm -hmm. it allowed them some freedom of movement, you could say, um, that others maybe couldn't have been afforded because they were assuming no one's going to try anything with that guy staying at the house. Mm -hmm. And and but they remember my 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 aunts will say to day that that they felt sorry for this Nazi because it's important to remember who was it. It was a teenage boy. It was an 18-year-old kid, (laughs) 19-year-old boy who every night they heard crying for his mother. He didn't want to be there as much as they didn't want him to be there.
0: That is so interesting, Joanna, because... Both Kaspar and Betsy said, we must pray for these Nazis. Yeah. They're in bondage. Uh, it's like Christ on the cross. Mm-hmm. Forgiven, they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Kaspar said, I pity them because they have touched the apple of God's eye.
1: Mm.
0: It's not going to go well for them. Right. So they even in the midst of that horror were able to me this is being more than a conqueror. Not only to survive, but to love your enemies and pray for them who persecute you. That's next level faith in mm-hmm. my opinion.
1: Mm-hmm. That's it. And so that's I mean in that sense in my own family they're they're the table prepared before them in the presence of their enemies and yet when you look your enemy in the face and you discover it's a scared 18-year-old yeah. young man, boy, really, who doesn't know how he got. He signs himself up on some idealism and then realizes what he's really stuck with. And none of them want to be in that place together. And then what can breed out of, um, not out of a naivete, but like a compassion for your enemy. Can you tell us that story of Cory Ten Boom? There's a famous story of hers where she encountered one of her jailers from oh. the from the concentration camp after the war. Can yes. you tell us about that situation? Oh, I love telling this
0: story, Joanna. She has recuperated from her experience. She's healthy enough to travel to churches and speak. The liberation has happened. She's speaking at a church. Uh, I'm not sure if it was in Holland or if it was in Germany. It's probably in I Germany. I believe it was in Germany, yeah. Yes. She's speaking, and lo and behold, one of the guards from Robinsbrook is there. He comes up to her after she's preached, and he said, and of course she recognizes him immediately, and this guard was especially cruel, and he was largely responsible for Betsy's death, and he comes up to Corey, and in a rather glib fashion, says, do you remember me? <clears throat> well, yes, of course she did. Uh, I've become a Christian, Miss Tinboom. Boom. Will you forgive me? And when Corey tells it, she says, you know, he, he was rather glib about it. Um, I know in my flesh, if I had been Corey at that moment, I would have wanted to see some tears in his eyes. I would have wanted him to get down on his face and... <laughs> You know, say, God, have mercy. I can't believe I did what I did. You know, groveling is what I would have wanted. So Corey looks at him and hatred rises in her heart toward him. He actually extends his hand to her and says, will you forgive me? She says, hatred rose up in her heart. And then Romans 5, 5 came into her heart, into her mind which says, and I'll do it in her beautiful Dutch accent, Romans 5:5, For the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hmm. She said by an act of the will, she extended her hand to him. And when he took her hand, She describes it this way. She actually felt an electrical impulse come from her shoulder, down her arm, into her hand. She squeezed his hand and said, I forgive you, brother. But she makes no bones about saying, I had to have Holy Spirit help in order to do this. And this was basically her message all around the world afterwards was the enabling of the Spirit. She said, um, forgiveness is an act of the will, regardless of the temperature of the heart. It's an exact quote from Corey. Mm.
1: Say that so again. That was that was really good. Say that again.
0: Forgiveness is an act of the will, regardless of the temperature of the heart.
1: Mm. It that, can be done regardless. And that temperature, like the heat down her arm as she goes to shake this... Um, torturer's hand
0: and her heart was cold, but she was transformed. She, in, in that moment, again, she was more than a conqueror.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, this message I think, uh, has resonated year over year, not just for the, there's a bravery in the act, but then it was that she was brave even after that she was brave Mm -hmm. to forgive and, and that she, um, Of course that it, um, I can't imagine, you know, any of us encountering the people who have caused us pain and people who have been cruel to us and for them to say, oh, I've changed now. Do you believe me? Will you forgive me? Can we, can we have peace between us? You know, this idea of having to extend your hand, you know, the, the way that God helped her do that. Um, you know, what What about this has impacted your life? Um, you've spent time in her life. You've spent time in her brain. You've spent time in her accent, even. <laughs> um, you know, I love that you said, you know, when you do that, it, we use that accent a lot in my family to to sort of make <laughs> jokes about the way Dutch people think or do things. And, and, you know, we're not about spiritual things, usually about jokes and how, how people make a cup of coffee or something. But, um uh, you know, this has, I can see, has impacted you personally playing this work. I'm not sure. I'm sure at some level, all characters that you play have an impact on you. You have to embody it. But, but about this character, Corey Temboom, who's not just a character, but a, a real person. How has that impacted you, Nan?
0: Well, like I said earlier, it has caused me to reflect and think about what hill will I die on hmm. if asked to? How am I daily faithful? What are my small hidden obediences every day that are preparing me? Who knows? You know, I trust in the sovereignty of God like Corey did. I trust that he's got unseen work for me. Um, And I wonder, I mean, politically, you know, if you're watching, things are strange. We're living in a very interesting hour. Um, that God's not surprised by, but he chose to allow me to be alive at this moment. So as, as much as I grieve the ungodliness I see happening in our culture, I also know that this is not taking the Lord by surprise by any means. And he knew when I would be born. He knew when I would be alive. He knew the tests that I would face. And um, I don't know what all they are. Corey and Betsy and Caspar didn't know what was coming. So it is affecting me in that I want to emulate their behavior. I want to be ready. Mm. I want to trust that I'll be given the ticket at the moment that I need it. But in the meantime, I want to be faithful in the work he's given me right now. Uh, The daily hidden obediences that only he sees, Mm. and that's good enough so that if something, if I'm called for something a little more public, a little more dangerous, a little more costly, I will have treasured Christ today above all else, Hmm. so that I will be able to treasure him in that moment above all else Hmm. and take whatever risk is necessary. So playing Corey has molded and shaped me in that way, hmm. to stay in a place of humility and daily readiness for whatever I'm called upon to do.
1: Hmm. You know, one of one of the things that that feels so practical out of this for us to reflect on, but but I'm I'm curious about sort of as you think about the modern home that we live in and the act of hospitality. You know, I think of how often Jesus was received by others in wealthy and poor homes and the best of the best and some very humble places. I think about him calling Zacchaeus out of a tree. I'm coming to your house today. I'm thinking about um you know then this you we would say broadly this almost um um lock your door, modern radical individualism, mind your own business you know this the stuff we know about um you know people aren't helping their i mean very practically the loving of neighbor, the inviting into coming to a table, this act of eating together, this act of sharing our our home and our stuff um you know, do you, you know that's something that was ingrained in them, but calls us to something. I, and I think that's where, like, well, what can we do? You know, we're not faced with a Nazi overlord right now. You know, like we're not faced with these these kinds of things, but. Um, what is it about that piece of it? This, this, it's almost this counter, even in their time, this countercultural hospitality. Yes. Is there something you want to say about that? You know, as again, as we're kind of continuing even to just teach people about how did they use their home? What kinds yes. of things were going on there? Um, you know, what are those challenges to us today?
0: I, you, you ask great questions, Joanna. I, um, I come from a tradition of hospitality. Mm. My parents, my father was a university professor and my mother was a fantastic cook. In fact, she was a, she made a career of food writing. She was a food writer for um, two of our local newspapers and a local magazine. Mm. And uh, dad, both dad and mom had the gift of hospitality. And dad was always bringing college students home who maybe couldn't go home for Thanksgiving, uh, or, or, and and my father was also a drama director and teacher and music teacher. So there were always cast parties at our house. We lived, uh, you know, one street over from the university. Hmm. People, the students could walk to our house. They didn't even need to have a car. And, um, it was typical for my mother to make food for 75 people in one night. Wow. (laughs) Um, and they were, they were, since hospitality, um, was something they loved. They were energized by it. Although my mother really was an introvert, so it was was harder for her, (laughs) I think, on some levels. But we grew up bringing home a visiting pastor after church for Sunday lunch. And college students, like I said, and just uh, all manner of people were always at our table. Mm. And so that's something I'm used to. And, you know, I, I grew up in the 60s, um, But now in this day and age, like you were referring to, we're much more isolated. You know, cooking, cooking a meal is hard work. And we're so hyper busy now that it's hard to do the hard work of meal preparation. Mm. I think people appreciate it more now, maybe even than 40 years ago. Because it's so unusual to sit down in someone's home over food they have prepared for you. So I think it is a huge evangelistic tool and a relationship builder to have people to put your phone away, don't bring your phone to the table, sit down and look somebody in the eye and just say, what's going on with you? I want to hear, I want to know you. Um, that opens a person's heart for the gospel. If they don't know Christ, that's a huge open door.
1: Yeah, that's right. Well, Nan, and you're speaking my language because, uh, you know, I spend some of my week working with this organization called Alpha, which is all about come around a table, have some hospitality and food, and talk about faith. Bring any opinion, any, you know, all opinions welcome, but let's have a discussion. And there's something that when we practice that, we are practicing, I think, the heart of, of God for welcoming people and then even the enemy at the table or, the, you know, the one who could never repay us. You know, what good is it, Jesus says, if you tit for tat, you know, somebody invites you for dinner and you know that you can have them for dinner, you know. But the people who, you know, in the Ten Boom household, the story of the hiding place and the story that we're encouraged to is uh, those who may never be able to repay you, the impact on their life if we open our lives, our homes, do you know the today?
0: 10 booms saved 800 people in those two years? They saved 800 people.
1: Wow. 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 Well, thank you, God, for their yes. for their life. You know, Nan, if we um um wanna find this film, like where could we watch it locally? You know, is there a website or something that we can be directed to for finding it locally? And then also, of course, where do we find you? I know you have a podcast, you have your own work. Point us at a few places and we'll make sure to link that down in the show notes today. Thank
0: you. Thank you for that. Okay. If you want to see the movie, go to the dot com. Okay. And you can scroll, find the, type in your city, and it will show you the theaters where it's showing. And I have a podcast with my best friend named Bonnie Keen, and it's called Women Who Dare to Believe. Mm. And we take a deep dive into all the women of scripture. And you can find that on any streaming platform.
1: Mm. Well, Nan, thank you for your work. Thank you for this piece of not just art, but I think almost prophetic proclamation into the, the times that we live in about a different way to live and to live boldly and this act of forgiveness and hospitality um, and courage to care for those who uh, who need help. So Nan, thank you for this. I can't wait to see it myself. And I hope many people listening, I know we're going to go with my family. I can't, can't wait to see it. Um, so thank you so much. Well, everyone, thank you so much for jumping into this summer special conversation about The Hiding Place, the life of Corrie Ten Boom, and really just this inspiration that has impacted my life that I hope you will enjoy learning from as well. If you haven't read the book, read the book. If you're ever going to Amsterdam or to Holland, don't just check out the Anne Frank house. Go check out the house where Corrie Ten Boom and her family live. You can go and stand in The Hiding Place. You can see the house, learn how they lived and learn how they said these radical yeses that didn't maybe feel so much so at the time but one yes at a time they said yes to what God was inviting them to do to save hundreds of lives and I encourage you to go check that out if you ever go to Amsterdam it's just a short train ride to Harlem another amazing city that's great to see and also go check out The Hiding Place but of course you can go check this out in theaters you can always go to the to find out where it's playing in your local town in your local city it's playing here and a ton of theaters here in my local area so you can definitely check it out too. So coming up this fall on the podcast, we've been taking a break this summer, but we're looking forward to getting you more fresh episodes. We've been recording things, but holding off, wanting to wait till the fall to start releasing. We've got Addison Bevere from Messenger International. It reaches millions of people across the globe. We're talking to Hosanna Wong. She's this preacher woman extraordinaire. We've got Pete Gregg, who's uh, leads the global movement 24-7 prayer and a ton of more episodes we've been recording and waiting to release. So, please stay tuned. Thanks for those who've been reaching out and wondering where new episodes are coming from. We'll be bringing you more this fall. So thanks so much and see you on the next episode of Word Made Digital.